And welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? Dude, we're back to give the people what we want. And uh, it should be called a Christmas episode because we're giving out gifts here. I mean, or it could be a Thanksgiving episode because you got to be thankful for what we're about to talk about today. It's, whew, I'm excited. I'm excited. Oh, man, you and me both, because we're going to talk about something that we've both been looking at, studying, diving deep into for years. This is like, yeah, almost 10 plus years of just like, you know, (laughs) needle in a haystack. (laughs) And and it really is. You know, I'm going to go back. I'm going to start this by giving a kind of introduction of where I kind of uh, came around this is I remember in gosh it had to be like 2008 I was coaching high school kids um my top runner over the winter break gets mono and back then it was like mono was like the death sentence of yes. your your, of your season your, of, yes, yes, season. your season. it was done hard season's done Everyone's like, up, oh, go rest, like you're done for, like it's up. And then it was this kid's yeah. senior season. Uh, his name, I mean, it was Ryan Donor. He'd just gotten, I think, 10th or 11th at NXN. So he's really excited about track season, gets mono, and everyone's like, it's over, like rest. Yeah. yeah. Kiss of I death. Remember, mono I, was the kiss yeah, of death. <laughs> I, I went on a hunt, right? I was like, all right, there's got to be some other approach we can take. And, you know, he took his time off. The doctor said, oh, you can start jogging. Well, anything long sucked. Like anything hard sucked. So, you know, the fatigue was real. So what did we do? I I remember going back into run, 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 reading again, rereading this section or this part on like igloy training. And I said, this is what we're going to try. I didn't know much about it started diving deep as which there was not much about it at that point um and we tried igloy or my interpretation of igloy style training to get ryan back because you know what i was like you know what we can do 100 meters relatively easy and we'll just do 100 meter relatively easy with short rest and keep doing this and the 150s and 200s and all this stuff And lo and behold, you know, three months later, after he comes back, he was a state champion in in the two mile off of modified igloy training. And that was really the the kind of aha moment of like, oh, like this stuff works. And and you have to understand, especially in, in 2008, this is me coming off of like super high volume, like Lydiard influenced, heavily Lydiard influenced, even heavily Mary's back in like threshold influenced at that point, like lots of thresholds, lots of volume, et cetera. That's how we do this stuff. And here, you know, Ryan won the two mile state champ over some really good runners like Parker Stenson, I believe, or some others. And, um, and it was off of, if you looked at the training, it wasn't that impressive because it was like, it's like, we're going to run a bunch of 200s. Woo. Um, 
but it was it really captured the the genius of of Igloy and and set me down a path of like, hey, there's something here and we got to understand it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean very similar kind of you know, genesis moment for me too with Igloy uh and understanding his trying to get exposure to his mythology. Same deal. Run 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 cuz that was the like the only source on him available in print i had it i looked at it and i needed a solution because i was a young volunteer or lowly paid assistant coach at my high school and i was the 800 meter and down coach so i you know and i i was a distance runner too you know came up in the school of high volume same situation i was like how am i gonna coach these hurdlers and these sprinters and these four by four runners and these 800 meter runners and this and that and all I knew was ground and pound, get your miles in mentality, right? And then I started looking at what Igloo was doing. And then I started looking around at what other sprint coaches were doing in terms of what they called speed endurance or stamina training or tempo run in the sprint vernacular. And I go, wait, this is all the same stuff. <laughs> it's just Igloo's with adult men is doing it for longer duration. And these sprinters are doing it at faster speeds. But the principle is exactly the same. And I didn't know why it worked, but I knew it worked. And it worked with, you know, when I did the first uh, threshold of experimentation on myself, it worked. I got faster. I felt stronger. I felt, quote unquote, more fit. And then it worked with the athletes, right? Like out of that group on basically no mileage, essentially, like, you know, we had a young lady who was the 1500 meter state champ and, you know, um, top of... uh, the podium, you know, like top three in the 800, like, you know, people qualifying to state who this is my first year out as a senior. I've never ran track before. And I made it to the, you know, final of the 800 on the boys side. Like it's crazy. But in the reason it was crazy, right? Cause it was counter to the entire exposure and education I had prior. And I had no idea why it worked. I just knew it worked. And that set me on a path to figure out why. Why does this work scientifically? Why? <laughs> and it it was like bashing your brain in for about, yeah, almost 15, 16 years. Like it set me off the trajectory of like understanding strength conditioning, uh, the science behind strength conditioning, the science behind sprinting, the science behind all this other non-distance oriented stuff. Because I was trying to figure out why Igloy's methodology worked. And here we are, 2023, and we figured it out. Yay! (laughs) Good things come to those who wait and those who persist, I guess. Yeah. So, so let's let's dive into this, and we're gonna dive into this for a specific reason. We should we should mention this as like we've poured all of this into the Igloy course and the Running Scholar program. and this was a behemoth of a undertaking because we had to research, interview, you know, use our good friend Jason Rita to uncover Hungarian. Which was text. insane. I mean, we yeah. had spent probably five years finding haphazardly all the English translated yes. works. And then Steve's like, oh, this will be super easy. There's only like, you know five texts and we just like pound, you know, ground and pound through it. I'm like, yeah, totally. And then Jason shows up. He's like, Hey, this just got translated out of the Russian, out of the Hungarian, out of this. And I'm like, Oh, this is awesome. (laughs) Yeah. So we owe a lot because there are only literally 
you know, like five texts that, that something like that, that talk about them. But in, in Hungarian, there's actually Igloy himself actually wrote an article and then one book chapter. Uh, yeah. He didn't write a lot, which is part of the problem on translating. But but he did a little bit in Hungarian and then did many interview or a handful of interviews um, as well as former athletes talking about it. And that really brought us some clarity on what his system was right mm -hmm. and i think what what encapsulates is this is there's this wonderful quote where he says essentially you know no workout is repeated i've probably given seventy thousand variations of workouts yeah and this goes back to the methods are many but the principles are few and so we often you know i feel like in the training space in the coaching space we sit here and very argument argumentative or def defensive about methodology Oh, what's the method? What's the method? When really we need to go back to first principles, like what's the principle behind it? And so as a new coach, it drives you crazy because you just want a method, a recipe you can copy and paste. But master coaches like Igloy or Lydiard or, you know, uh, Canova, they should be esteemed because you look at their training and it's always N01 novel to the athlete because they're so succinct on what the principle and how to apply it. Yeah, and I think that's what what hopefully this course and this discussion will get across is that once you know the principle, you can apply it in your own endeavor, right? The, and the problem, I think, with modern coaching where we've taken a sidestep in the wrong direction is we've put so much emphasis on the, the schedule and the writing of it and the writing of the workouts. And Igloy is saying, he was essentially saying, hey, hold up hold on people, hold on, like time out, like understand the principles behind what you're trying to do. And then it's like this artistic dance of push pull where you're essentially testing to a degree, like what happens during the set of a workout, seeing that feedback and then adjusting and deciding what comes next based on this. You know, and I think too far, the analogy I'll use pulling for another sport is in running, we're really, we're really good at, you know, in football, they often script the first couple plays, like the first drive, right? The first offensive drive, they're like, these are the, you know, 10 plays we're going to run because we're going to script it so that we know. And then after that, they go into kind of responsive, more responsive. In running, I feel like we're really good at the, we're going to script this. But if we script that for the whole game, then it's not going to work out very well because we can't predict everything that's going to happen and the adjustments that are going to happen and how the defense responds. Well, in running, we don't have a defense, but we have an athlete in their physiology and psychology. So when we, we kind of script the workout, what we're actually doing is we're predicting how we think they're going to respond. We're saying, you know, we're going to do 10, 400 and 60 with 90 seconds rest because we think that physiologically and psychologically they'll respond in X way. The problem though, is that just like in football, like things shift and change, right? And what Igloy is essentially doing is saying timeout. Like we need to understand why we're writing these workouts and prescribing them. But at the same point, we need to be able to shift and flex based on the feedback that we're getting in here. Because, because him 
it, it was like he knew the adaptation he was trying to get. And this was the aha moment for, for me. It's like, oh, he knows what he's trying to do, right? He goes into the workout saying, you know, the, using modern vernacular, we would say, oh, we're going to try and get as much threshold training as possible, whatever. Well, Igloo would have that that idea of what he was trying to do, but then he would respond to the athlete and what they were doing to maximize the training adaptation. And I think that is the aha moment that I would apply to, you know, us in the modern sense of like, we need to be more responsive in our coaching. We need to be able to adjust and adapt as we go. Yeah, it's the, you, you hit it. It's, it's the depth of what we're trying to achieve. And I'm often reminded uh, looking at and studying nature is mother nature rarely, rarely, it's very rare in mother nature to see straight lines. But yet that's our bias. We like the straight linear pr- progression. We like a nice, quick, simple, and easy, uh, you know, correlation and causation concepts. And so we gravitate towards these frameworks that are positioned and sold to us essentially as if you run these miles at this pace over this long term for this many weeks, you're going to get guaranteed this ability to run this time. And it's not always the case, right? Because we, we tend to doctor the outcome because in order to manufacture that, promised time from all this hard work we fly athletes out to the perfect setting um, climate possible with the perfect pacing to perfectly manufacture this right and it's become something of um, an endemic uh, unfortunately like when you look back at like what athletes in the Zatapak era Igloy era and even in you know Lydiard so we're talking 50s and 60s they just ran wherever, whenever, <laughs> and they ran fast and they ran on cinders and it didn't matter if it was crazy hot, crazy windy. They just ran like I was uh, looking back at uh, old track and fields news and there was this, you know, article of this uh, collegiate record holder from Ar- Arkansas and she just set the collegiate national record for the women's 10K after, you know, they had been running the 10K for several years for, on the women's side by herself at a conference meet in oklahoma and you're like in you know late may or whatever and you're like pretty i'm pretty sure it's windy and sucks <laughs> and she was solo right but it's like it's that exploratory capacity and that's you know again why we esteem people uh and coaches we do who are mass who have a higher mastery orientation than performance orientation because if you just want performance outcomes you're going to take copy and paste here's the schedule, do this. But if you're truly in the arena exploring and trying to level up not only yourself, but those around you, you're going to be okay with the um, uh, opaqueness and uncertainty of exploration. And that's what Igloy did. Like his trial and error methodology took a long time to kind of figure out what the correct proportion was for each athlete. And there are staples. And you'll see this in the... um, course there are staples to his training or staples like to what bob shul did where it's like these anchors where okay we have this kind of protocol for to warm up refresh you know like the bob shul between set series concept where you're just like it was a given that's what you did to kind of reset or do an aerobic flush in between series of highly uh high high acidosis um creating workloads but what's happening in between again 
that's the secret sauce. But we have to be fundamentally super clear on what we're trying to achieve and why. And this is where the science part comes in. And we honestly, we owe a debt of gratitude to people like uh, David J. Bishops um, out of Australia, um, his research in his lab. Uh, and his team, we owe a debt of gratitude to, you know, the godfather of lactate, as I like to call him, George Brooks, uh, you know, and his disciples uh, and mentees like um, uh, Ignu uh, San Milan, I probably butchered his name, um, because what they have found, and this is the interesting thing, is they've proven it time and time again. All this training does is it's the most effective stimulation of mitochondrial biogenesis. And mitochondria is really important that we understand that because the old knock on the Lydiard system, right, and high mileage was like the only way to build mitochondria, the only way is through high volume, high volume in months and months and months. But David Bishop's work pretty succinctly time and time again demonstrates mitochondria content, easy come, easy go. And it's pretty rapid. So this is, it's about, those time horizons are really short. I mean, mitochondria, uh, we know if you go completely naked or sedentary from activity, none, zero whatsoever. Six weeks, you're back to baseline. No matter how long you trained, no matter how you know much volume you train with, if you just take six weeks off and do absolutely nothing, you go to baseline. So why are we having four or five month you know, block periods of, you know, uh, mileage periods in the summer. Like, why are we uh, having athletes do two months of like, all right, we're just gonna do high mileage here. And for a long time, the justification was, is to get your mitochondria content up, which that does, it does do that. Like high mileage, lots of contraction through the calcium ion exchange does create increased mitochondria content or population. However, Bishop's work again, succinctly proves like, it's not just about the population size and the size of the mitochondrial cells. It's also the quality or what they call respiration. So respiration, the quality of content is responsive to very, very high intensity workloads. So anything at basically for distance runners, 3K pace, 5K pace and faster. So even though we all know, like if you run a lot of miles, you get quote unquote fitter, it's because you have more mitochondria in general, yes, but they're not functioning at the highest level they could. And to get that adaptation, you've got to do high intense stuff. And the final thing they've realized too, it's about frequency. You just got to have micro doses over and over and over again. And this is makes perfect sense because when you look at Igloy, when you look at Lydiard, when you look at ke traditional Kenyan training, when even you look at Prefontaine and uh, the Oregon system under Bowerman and Dillinger, You'll and uh, you know, when you look at Olympians throughout the ages, um, you know, Horace Asher felt the last gold medalist in the men's steeplechase is a good example in 1952. They all tripled at some point in their training for a sustained period of three to four weeks, like three runs a day. And they weren't all hard. Like you look at the Kenyan training, it's easy shakeout run at 6 a.m., 10 a.m., hard workout easy shakeout run 4 p.m. You look at Prefontaine's training, kind of a, you know, a fartlek, a continuous fartlek in the morning, midday, doing a sprint session. And then in the afternoon, he does kind of what we call now flux or an igloy style um, session. And Lydiard's guys, jog before dinner, I mean, excuse me, jog in the morning before breakfast, jog in the morning 
uh, before lunch or afternoon before lunch, and then work out in the evening. So we know that that frequency is a really high stimulus for mitochondrial biogenesis. And we just have to get away from this outdated thinking that the only way to augment mitochondrial adaptations is through mileage. Just how we have to get away from the old thinking that lactic acid, which is a make-believe thing, is the boogeyman that we can blame for all all, all our ills in sport. <laughs> all right, so let's let's break this down a little bit. I think it's really important here is, and I want to make this clear is what research shows is that. Um, well, first off, every training kind of intensity influences everything. But when we look at easy volume, what it tends to do is increase content of mitochondria to more so than, inten than intense work. But intense work increases, you know, you, you said respiration. I'll just simplify it even f further, function. So how well, well those mitochondria are functioning. This is why you need this combination of of, of stuff. And the, this is where I'm going to bring Igloy in. And this is where research actually in the, the early 2000s by Veronique Balot really kind of opened eyes is up to that point when we did kind of the traditional VO2 max work stuff, right? Um, because people started to realize, oh, this improves our function of mitochondria and performance and stuff like that is up until that point, it was like, oh, go run, you know, three minute intervals or 800s or thousands at VO2 max, blah, blah, blah. And Blot comes in based on um, looking at, at kind of Zatapex and some of those early influencers and says like, hey, what if we do, you know, 30 seconds on, 10 seconds off or whatever at stuff. And what they found, what her research found is that you're able to keep that sustained pressure um on that that stimulus by looking at you know keeping vo2 max high essentially for longer than that that go run thousands so it's a different and probably a um, a higher uh stimulus for adaptation well all she was doing was simulating what igloy had discovered you know 50 60 years ago and he talks about this to a degree and so does bob Schul, where you know they didn't know vo2 max or anything at like that at that point really i mean they did to a degree but not that we know all bob Schul talked about is like the um the uh the interval style with short rest allows you to keep pressure on the heart right he said he said it doesn't drop below i forget the number but he's like it doesn't drop below this which means we're able to keep pressure even though we are recovering and what what we now know, tying into the work that you just that you just talked about there, is that if we can keep that that get a higher stimulus around this kind of pretty intense but not crazy intense, um, like Igloy did, then we get increase the function of our our mitochondria number one. Yeah, I love I, how you say pressure there, Steve. That's a good thing to keep in mind. Yeah, it's it's keeping that 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 pressure on that and i love seeing the pressure because if you look at igloy what he is doing is and i mentioned this at the beginning is he is playing with like very slightly pushing and pulling that right so even the so-called the shul in between like shakeups whatever they'll run hundreds what is that but a way to look at how do i recover while still keeping some pressure on the system right 
It's not, hey, we're tired. We're going to go stand for five minutes and that'll be good. No, Shul's like in Igloo, we're like, no, no, we want to keep keep things a little bit of pressure on the system, but we want to recover. How do we do that? Well, we run some hundreds, not not that fast, um, but not jogging. Some, you know, just kind of striding it out with short rest. Athlete recovers, keeps that heart rate pressure high, and then we can go into that next set. Yeah, it's using the proxies of the science we have at the time. And the reason everything was heart, heart, heart focused back then is because that's what the literature, you know, came out with, like, you know, Gershel and Van Aken and all those people talking about, okay, we want to, we're working the heart pressure. And it, you know, like everything in history of science, it wasn't exactly right, but it was a good enough proxy that people who understood in general that principle could then manipulate and play with it to outsized um returns exactly it's and you know what john we go into the history of where the science was at that point in the course and um so that that listeners and readers will have context around it and understand how that influenced these views but i think your your point is a a a brilliant one which is it did a good enough job to get them in the right ballpark and then let their kind of coaching instinct take over. And I think that that is the key and it's the same we can look at. So we've been talking about Igloy through a mitochondria uh, uh, kind of lens. We can look at it as you hinted at through a lactate lens as well. And although they didn't have this understanding at that point, that at that point it was like lactic, lactic acid, bad poison, whatever. Um, but what we now know is that this kind of like we call it flux, right? This kind of we're going to run 150 meters at a decent pace and then, you know, kind of cruise for 100 and then repeat it. What we're doing is, again, p- playing with this push and pull. And and the key here is that because the rep is so short, unless we were sprinting all out, we're not injecting a ton of lactate into the system right because it's 150 meters at even if it's at mile pace not much lactate into the system right it's it's just not gonna occur and because of the short rest as well you're not allowing with short rest actually we don't allow that kind of uh, anaerobic system to kind of recuperate so it can use again instead there's a little pressure on it so it doesn't fully recuperate, so we're not going to j- dump more lactate into the system. So what it is is, is this kind of genius way of of um, putting a little bit of lactate in the system and allowing your body to learn how to utilize and other muscle fibers to utilize, take up, etc., without overwhelming it. Compare that to traditional kind of interval training. We'll say the the banister 10 by 400, two minutes rest, 60 seconds or mile pace, whatever it is. What happens is because of the longer interval and the longer rest period, like those lactate, if we were to take blood lactate, like it just goes up, goes up, goes up, goes up until you're just swimming in the stuff, right? And, and with shorter intervals, with shorter rest, that doesn't happen. It keeps it a little bit lower so what that does is you have actually a um a more kind of like uh, aerobic adaptation even though you're running still Mm. pretty dang fast Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I think it's a really important to call out too, like heart rate or lactate. Again, they are still just proxies for the mitochondrial um, status in the body. And, you know, when you talk about igloi and what we call flux style training, the reason we call it flux, right, is we are dynamical creatures. We're always in flux. So there's that philosophical component. But the science behind it is pretty clear. It's called glycolytic flux. And what we're wanting to see is a fluctuation in glycolysis. And that fluctuation in glycolysis is very simple. It's when you are in higher bouts of intensity, more glycolysis and breakdown catabolism happens. Now, depending on your mitochondrial content, depends on how much lactate slips out into the bloodstream and is not immediately consumed right there, going becoming pyruvate, right, going through Krebs cycle in local, what we call localized consumption. So that slips in the bloodstream for more global consumption to find somewhere to be consumed. We just use lactate as the modern proxy for this dynamic. And so the best way I like to think about it that I've found is really helpful to even high school athletes is to explain when we're running, the goal is to try to buffer. And you're trying to buffer and buffer and buffer as best you can locally. But what happens, right, is eventually you reach your current capacity. Your mitochondrial are overwhelmed. There's, they're just taken up. You know, it's kind of like a, a, the lunch line, right? It, it, they're just in a line and you're not going to get lunch. So what do you do? You go look for other options, right? If you're in an open cafeteria setting. Same situation with lactate. It's like, all right, we're going to go with blood, look for other options, you know. Then during these micro bouts of recovery, is actually when we stop producing a whole bunch of lactate and we allow for a little bit of clearance to happen, but just not full clearance, right? And that's what, say, you saw with Steve's example here, um, with your example of banisters, 10 by 400, the clearance was too much. Like two minutes is allows for a lot of clearance time. Essentially, what we want with like what Igloy figured out is how do you find that balance of creating enough of a uh, situation or you know embarrassment right to the system and that lactate production and buffering at full capacity but then just pull back a little bit to let a little clearance happen to let like the line kind of die down before you release like a new class into the lunchroom right and it's like the line gets back up and that's really what we're oscillating or fluctuating between is this these signaling events right of buffering and clearance buffering and clearance this is you go look at Canova's alternations, right? I mean, that's that's just an application of this principle in more long, continuous type training for the marathon. This is why Canova was a genius marathon coach. He said, oh, here's what Igloy did, in essence, at this level with these track guys. And I can do this with marathoners. And he did it. <laughs> and you're like, oh, this is... And we know we have better literature and... Uh, data and science to explain better why it works. We're probably still not 100% right here, but we're closer than we've ever been. And yeah, shout out to Balat's work. Like it's huge, very under, very underappreciated, highly slept on. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, we always got to remember, like these are just proxies of expression that we can measure. We can measure lactate, we can measure heart rate, but the most important proxy and the easiest proxy to measure is respiration your physical breathing out. If you have that pressure where you need to get rid of a lot of gas, that out breath, right? That gas for exhalation, or as Mike Smith calls moving oxygen, if that sounds labored and heavy, then all those things, high heart rate, high lactate in the bloodstream probably are also happening at the same time too.
So you don't necessarily need all these sophisticated measures as long as you're sensitive to your breath. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I, you know, I, I think it's, again, what we're trying to get at is like, it's one of these things where the innovation often happens in coaching and then the science comes in and explains it afterwards, yeah. which, which is nice and wonderful. But the reason why we're doing this is because I think, you know, and the reason why we, we came out with this Igloo course is that many of the lessons have been lost. Yes. And, and it still works to this day. Quick case in point, um, you know, a, a scholar in the clubhouse who has probably fully adopted as much of this flux training or igloo style training as best, who has had a lot of personal conversations with me about it, trying to decode it. He's applied it to his high school program, you know, um, lock and key. And what was awesome was recently his top, um, you know, uh, runner, his guy like got third in the new balance indoor two mile and then the next day won the dang thing with no traditional long runs not an emphasis on miles like we're doing flex work doing a lot of technical work with wickets like wickets for runners like it works like it doesn't matter like how old you are what age you are your competitive level it just works and like the proof's in the pudding as he likes to say um and it and unfortunately, that's exactly why we came forward with this course was, Steve, you're right. Like we, it's one of those like things everyone knew that everyone forgot. <laughs> now, and, and I just want to go over a couple of things that I really found that, you know, that we're now rediscovering that were discovered decades ago, because I think this this kind of gets at the, the, the point of it. First off is this idea of like aerobic intervals, right? We've kind of talked about this, but for if you grew up like John and I in the the 90s, 2000s of of running, intervals were equated to like anaerobic, like hard, etc. Yeah, and it's all repetition work, run as yeah. fast as possible. Yeah, and what Igloy shows us and even Canova has mentioned there is a wonderful thing on um if and if you look at our Canova course, you'll see this. But he he measured lactate and talks about aerobic intervals for 800 athletes. His were 150s. I think his was like sets of eight by 150 with 50 meter jog. And it was like, look, if you do this at I don't remember the pace at mile pace, like the lactate levels are the same as if these guys instead of running four minute pace are running five minute pace on a tempo or whatever have you, you know. And it was like the lactate is the same. It's the threshold like effect if we're doing 150s. So for middle distance runners, you know, often for aerobic work, we need to do these these short aerobic intervals. So it's something that, again, six, 60, 70 years ago, Igloy is innovating. The other things that I want to point out that I found fascinating were um, there's been a lot of recent talk about, you know, the, the weekly schedule, how mm. for so long we've gotten trapped into the seven day a week set schedule and the, the every month, you know, micro cycle or mm. macro cycle or what mm -hmm. have you. And, mm -hmm. and those are arbitrary, right? <laughs> Completely. I mean, well, it, it, it tends to be six weeks is the, yeah. the only thing that really matters. <laughs> but, uh, but here, here's Igloy in again, the 1950s saying, um, essentially, you know, yes, we have micro and macro cycles, but 
These are not calendar-bound war plans, but flexibly formed cycles. There are cases when uh, we've achieved... um, It takes five weeks to achieve something. There's cases, and I'm now paraphrasing, where it takes three weeks to achieve something. The goal is when the thing is achieved, right? So it's adaptation-driven, and he's he's sitting here saying like, hey, if it's a three-week cycle, four-week cycle, five-week cycle, whatever, it doesn't matter. You go in understanding what you're trying to improve, right? And then the body tells you how long it takes to adapt to that. Yeah. And this is very reminiscent, too, of Bonnerchuk's work, right, in the concept of stable gains or sports form development, where even in Bishop's research, they show expression of PG1-alpha, right, the key um, enzyme, that transcription enzyme for myochondrial biogenesis. They did an interesting study where they essentially did, quote-unquote, high-volume training for a sustained period of time with, you know, again, a good number of relatively trained athletes, but not, you know, um, high level athletes. And what they did was their protocol was very simple. So it was a hit style um, exercise intervention, whereas four minutes um, at kind of 80% max effort, two minutes at 60% max effort, fluctuating back and forth like that for, you know, about 30, 40 minutes at a time. That was the introductory period. And they did that for three weeks, three workouts, a day. Then for another three weeks, they said, we're going to do this twice a day, the same protocol, four minute, two minute, but we're going to do it twice daily for 80 minute periods. So 80 minutes in the morning, 80 minutes in the afternoon for three weeks in a row with no break, the same thing every day. (laughs) Obviously there's nutritional interventions there to keep it up very high carbohydrate nutrition interventions, but they called. They didn't call this high intensity training. They called it high volume training, and they were looking in the research to see what the reaction to the body and mitochondrial content would be to this quote unquote high volume training. So let's just think about when you look at this and you go, these people are doing four minutes at high intensity. I mean, it's a hit 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 style intervention, obviously, for eighty minutes twice a day. I go, what is this? So, oh, it sounds exactly like Iglo and Shul and what all these people did. <laughs> oh my gosh. And so what they showed was mitochondrial content or PG1-alpha expression is like any kind of stimulus, right? There's a really high spike in the beginning, and then it starts to essentially level off and then plateau. And it, and so they didn't, and since they didn't change any part of the stimulus frequency, intensity, density, or volume, we we normalized. They had the, the the body adapted to it, and that's just the law law of the land, right? So that's why again, it's adaptation driven. And yeah, some people can adapt to this type of work and no longer get any kind of benefit after maybe three weeks or five weeks. Some people might take seven weeks, but you just run it until that program for that person is no longer bearing fruit, and then boom, on to you know complete change over exercise or stimulus on to the next. Yes. And, and, and I love that. I, I love that you mentioned that study because like the other thing that I think is interesting that Igloy kind of figured out seven, seven years ago is the impact of double workouts, right? Like we see it now, but Igloy, you know, with double threshold and the Norwegians are doing this and this and Igloy back then is talking about, 
no, no, no. If we can get these double kind of moderate workouts or sometimes a priming session in the morning leading to afternoon harder session, what have you, like we can get the adaptation, we can amplify this adaptation. And you know, it's something that it's taken in the, the, the Kenyans have known this for, Oh my gosh. Yes. For, you know, this, this was part of their system, you know? Yeah. And what's interesting is the science backs it up too. So, you know, uh, Keith Barr is also, he's also a good, a key player in this mitochondrial content, um, expression area. Um, and I forget, so excuse me, it might have been out of Keith's lab and team, or it might have been out of Bishop's team. But what they found was that enzymatic expression of PG1-alpha, so the key thing that matters for this mitochondria, turning on mitochondria, peaks at about roughly three hours, roughly. So if you come with another exercise intervention after three hours at, um, after the termination of the first exercise intervention or workout, well, then you keep keep that expression up i mean it's not rocket science like and you know lo and behold what have they found if you look at the kenyans six and ten right so they do 50 minutes shake out on at six they're done by seven o'clock three hours later they start the next workout holy guacamole they're you know again in lockstep with what we know now in science they've just purely figured out through trial and error and also it probably do the environment, right? Because in Kenya, you had to get up at 6 a.m. and do your workout at 10 a.m. Because the middle of the day is just hot and awful. <laughs> right, exactly. It's sometimes the environmental, you know, it's funny too. You know why, I mean, we didn't do double workouts, but you know why we split mileage in doubles? Like for mm. most people, like, you know, everybody knows. I ran a bunch of miles in high school. What most people forget is that I, I split those doubles. So it was like six and six, seven and seven, you know, why? Well, it's pretty simple. It was a billion degrees out in Houston. And like, once you got past an hour, it was like, you were done. So what did our coach have us do? He's like, just split it in half. It'll make it easy. Like you'll be able to survive two 45 minute runs versus like, you know, whatever have you. And the other part of that is that we also split during the school year because we were stuck running a mile loop around the campus. So, you know, you drive yourself nuts if you try to run 10 mile, 10 loops. So what do you do? You split it. You run five loops in the morning, five loops in the evening or and after practice. And, and sometimes these environmental cues or like constraints can push us towards like some interesting innovations that that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah. I mean, and even for my own running, right. When I was in high school, I realized I needed to do, I need to run before school. Like, and I just understood this. So what I do was very simple. I would go run a three mile loop at about six minute pace or faster every morning. Um, you know, uh, during this, during the school week, like every morning, just three miles, like, and, Guess what? When we say aerobic, right? Anytime you hear the word aerobic or aerobic endurance, we're talking about mitochondria. So we know from, you know, um, the great work of Jack Daniels that the aerobic stimulus happens at about 20 minutes, three miles, six minute pace, about 20 minutes. Boom. You just get this signaling event. And that's how we have to think about training. I think it really uh, helps to clarify if we think of training as 
a signaling event. And if you are very, very clear on the signal you want to achieve versus if you look at, let's say, Alan Webb's training, right? It doesn't always have to be runs. Like he would do a workout or a run and then, you know, you guys would come back a couple hours later and like do a pretty high intensity stimulating lift or plyo session or combo session or something. And that was like twice a day, right? I mean, those stories of you being like, I'm exhausted. I can't move. And like, oh yeah, by the way, Steve, this afternoon we got a lift. You're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> or very simple, like when I was coaching the High Performance West, you know, Enclave, one of our key staples was double easy run and then a skills and drill session in the afternoon after everyone got off work at our at our, the gym we use. So now you're like, okay, run in the morning, run before, maybe before, right before or at lunch, and then the skills and drill session, which again, a lot of plyometrics, med ball, all this higher intensity stuff that wasn't specific to running, but was generally stimulating. That's three three sessions in a day. Or if we did, you know, a workout, right? It'd be a workout, a couple hours later, a lift, and then a couple hours after that, like an easy 30-minute shakeout. So, and, you know, you start to do math on that. And like, these ladies are doing this four times a week. And it's like, oh, that's how... They're, they have basically triples four times a week. And I didn't know it at the time, but that's how we were able to get like these people you never even heard of national caliber, national class, because they were just, they just show up and keep putting in the work. And it's so funny when you have this clarity about the principles at the like cellular level of why something works. And you go back and you just do an inventory of like, oh yeah, I did this. And when I did this, this worked. And when I did that, this worked. And I, I mean, I knew this in college too. Like we, our coach never had us do doubles because he was of the believer, like one, one and done run, you know, is the time when Wetmore and the UP model of just one medium long run. And that's really, you know, miles and singles was a big deal. And I was like, I, I got a double. I knew I needed to double. And so I went and run on my own accord, five mile easy shakeout four times a week. And the year I did that was my best year in college. <laughs> Nothing else had changed. <laughs> I mean, it's just sometimes it's so simple. You just look in the mirror and go, oh, God, it's so simple. We're so stupid. But that's the humility science offers us and history. Exactly. And, you know, so I want to keep this going. There's there's a couple other things that I found fascinating in researching is a lot of the 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 quote unquote hate on Igwe's training is like, oh, it's all on the track. It's all on the track. Well, listen to this quote from one of his former athletes. They never ran on concrete. 85% of their training was done on the grass next to the cinder track. The remaining small part was time trials on friendly cinder. And and I love pointing that out because a lot of times, like, you know, here Igloy is, is in consideration of the training surface. He's just doing it in a different manner than you or I would, Right. And it's, it's, again, you know, we have these misconceptions that often become like, oh, it's on the track all the time. Like, well, of course you're going to get hurt. And it's like, no, no, you use the environment around you. And the beauty of the short interval stuff like that is you can get away with doing on the grass or on the infield around in, in the inside of the track or outside the track, wherever it is, and, um, and uh, lower the injury risk. Yeah. And the other thing to keep, you know, 
top of mind too is he's not sitting there timing with a stopwatch every single rep yeah. and thinking there's this direct causation and correlation that's happening like oh if they they have to run everyone at this pace otherwise they won't get this and that like he's in the arena right and that's the idea it's a rule of good enough and together and that was the key part of their groups right like they typically have groups of about three or four and everyone was of similar ability level who are striving to level up so to speak so if someone started dropping off or what have you it was an indication that that person for that period on that workout had reached their capacity so to speak and the pressure was too much and this is the great thing about it is he never wrote anything down because he just understood if you just keep showing up keep showing up keep showing up and do the majority of the work in this style you're going to get better and faster and fitter and it, again, it's not just little bits of improvement. When we talk about Igloy, we're talking about outsized gains, outsized improvement. I mean, who else is going to have two different camps where multiple world records and national records will be held at two distinct different environments, two distinct time periods going from Hungary to Los Angeles, and yet in both circumstances, like the fastest ever <laughs> people who were just people who showed up and did the work and put in the work achieved this. I mean, it's very, it's like Vladimir Kuntz understood this as well. We didn't really include him uh, because we're, I'm trying to, you know, we're trying to include him more in kind of a, a course on the dynamics of flux and the history of flux in general. But Kuntz had a, a thing where he, what he called morning exercises, which essentially was gymnasium work. He'd lift, he'd, you know, do some, um, circuits in the gym, Russian style with kettlebells, et cetera. And that was every single day, five, seven days a week, period. It was like kind of what they did for military Russian training. And then Kunz would go in the afternoon or after, right after that morning exercise drill and go do a flux style work or igloy style work. Because again, igloy and Kunz was influenced by Zatopec. And it was their interpretation upgrades to Zatopec's understanding of this that helped spur them to become either master coach or in Kunz's example, master athlete. Exactly. And then one more thing that I want to tie in here. I'm just throwing in quotes because I love this. And you'll see <laughs> in the course, what we've done is we've given you interpretation, we've given you context, and then we've given you quotes as well to kind of like drive it home from three different ways. Um, one more. So recently we've you know, come to realize like, Hey, when you need to recover, you need to recover. Right. Yes. Um, guess who, guess who was preaching that 70 years ago? <laughs> yeah. Okay, li listen to this on the easy days and easy jogs. And this is a misconception we go over. Everybody thinks like Igloy, it's interval training every day. Every day's hard. No, 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 no. The variation in intensity and volumes of that was intentionally manipulated so that they they followed not not the Bowerman hard easy, but they followed a cycle of where they would alternate between easy, medium, hard and like place it at the same point. And sometimes, you know, uh, Igloo would go back to back hard, right? Like a Friday hard, a Saturday hard. And you ask him this and he he said pretty simply what do we do in the Olympics, right? And his point was like the 
the you're going heats and finals and you have to have to remember in the 40s and 50s and 60s they raced a hell of a lot more than we do now so they were doing hard you know races more frequently than we do now but anyways back to the easy days i'm going to give you the quote here for recovery run so slowly that the pace almost hurts Fatigue, fatigue should not be produced. It should be resolved. And and I love the contrast here because we have a coach here who's like known for his hard interval training, et cetera. And he's saying, hey, wait a minute. Like, yeah, there are times and places where we're going to run so slowly that the pace almost hurts. And it's a, it's a, it's an idea of the, the, Again, the going back to what we talked about at the very beginning, it's understanding the principles. And once you understand the principles of what you're trying to do, then it gives you the free reign to almost be this artist where you're playing with the interval intensity and volume and all this other stuff. And one more, I'm just going to keep giving giving uh, quotes here, but it's how you controlled it. So another quote, this one from one of his athletes explaining how he saw Igloy manipulate the interval sessions. He said, it happened several times that his athletes moved too well during training. He's talking about early in the training phase, in which case Igloy would deliberately slow slow them down or increase the distance or reduce the rest so that they wouldn't go too fast because then they would get in shape too early. So, so what is that? Again, it's Igloy's responsive coaching where he's saying, okay, I can manipulate the constraints of this interval to get what I'm trying to you know, want out of them at this place so that we don't, quote unquote, peak too early because like it's, it's almost like he's always got his hand on the on the wheel, just like slightly adjusting as, as he needs to. Yeah. God, that's glad you, you know, Steve did a lot of the history on this and really dig deep in all these resources. I was kind of way more, you know, attuned to this, the modern science that explains this phenomena, because again, I think Igloy more than anything represents a Genesis point of the scientific method at play. Right. And as coaches, that what is essentially the scientific method is having a theory or hypothesis and then seeking to disprove it. But Igloy's method and application of these principles continuously time and time again, athlete after athlete. And then we extrapolate that to Canova, you know, to the athletes I work with at the high school level that Steve's worked with, you know, everyone's interest in alternations, training, et cetera. Time and time again, this thing has proven rock solid proven you know the, the proofs in the pudding right and it's really important we we call that out because yeah you can look to like say one extreme talented athlete like say Zadapek and his self-applied um, methodology of these principles and say well that's one outlier you know and, and we can always we we tend to esteem and look up to and over sensationalize an outlier but when a coach is producing multiples uh, you know, athletes at a very serious level who might not have been before, you know, uh, his arrival that competitive, that's not an outlier. That's to me, it's just science. (laughs) I mean, and so that's why we look to that. And, you know, the thing about Lydiard is again, he's not wrong. 
it's not like, oh, Lydia's wrong. It's his interpretation application was different. The sub T marathon volume that they did, right, piggybacked on, again, twice a day easy jogging for these blocks. And Lydia figured out this generally worked and it worked really well, but because he kept the pressure, and you hear Lydia talk about this all the time, got to keep the pressure on the pressure on bounding hill phase, their interval phase, which we've gone over many times, which is, you know, bonkos, right? Well, again, it's all about mitochondria are very receptive to load. And if the load's not there, they go away. If the load's there, they they stay either stabilized or get better. And so Lydiard's interpretation of all of this was a master manipulation of, all right, we're going to manipulate the crap out of the volume component. And we're going to keep that volume real high. And again, an hour to two hour runs. So then when they transition to the hill bounding phase, which again, those are 90 minute sessions, we stabilize the volume or time under tension, so to speak. And now we're going to manipulate the intensity. And then we get to the track and we manipulate the intensity. And this stuff works to cross, um, you know, um, sporting continuum. If you look at the Bulgarian lifting method, their method was high frequency lifts. So they would do focus on one lift and really get after it. And they do this one lift with anywhere between 30 minute to three hour breaks in between. And they would have be in the gym lifting about anywhere from four to eight times a day, but only doing and focusing on the skill of a lift. Right. And we tend to think, oh, they're in the gym getting strong. It's like, no, they're high intensity motor programming, which also has this metabolic effect, which also has a strength augmentation effect. But again, they were outsized competitiveness because of that high frequency, high intensity dosage. So this principle holds true. And that's why Steve and I are so adamant about it. And like, it is to me, it's the secret of the sauce here because it just ties all these kind of things that are floating around in the coaching ether that we know work, but we don't necessarily know why they work. And so rather than like haphazardly throwing darts at the, you know, or at the wall and hoping they, they hit a bullseye and stick, we now have way more precision about that direction, but we always got to remember the map is not the territory. And the main thing I'll, you know, I'll finish with here, Steve, is we, I think when we talk about mileage or we talk about the seven day um, microcycle or periodization in general, we, what I've noticed, and I was fell victim to this too for a long time, is we essentially have uh, a status game of how well does the athlete match the coach's training prediction or training schedule? And when we, we, when we are schedule oriented, essentially we're telling the athlete the only way that we get, uh, you know, a positive outcome or positive interpretation of the work is if what you do matches exactly what I planned. Exactly. And that's really how we're graded as how good of an athlete or coach are we and how good's the relationship based on how well the matching happens. Iglois demonstrates it's not about the match, it's about the general direction. And so the dynamics of workout can change. The dynamics of the day can change. The dynamics of the direction of work can change. And that's okay because it's like Bondarchuk. It's about individual adaptive periodization, IAP, where we're just trying to get the best bang for our buck with this person. And the way to apply it is by simply in a bigger context, like say the high school setting, what I do is I give athletes choice. I give them autonomy. I say, all right, today we're going to do the 400 meter drill. And for us, the 400 meter drill is simply run a 400 at 3K pace with a 
um, one to uh, half work rest ratio. So if you run at 80, you start off with 40 second recovery. I go, okay, everyone's doing a minimum today of six laps. We're going to slice them and dice them however you want. You know, we can do packages of three to start off or four if you want, but you tell me how you're feeling. And we're going to have a maximum of 10. Okay. And then as athletes go, we check in, I listen to how they're moving auction. You know, I have a conversation with them. That 40 seconds that they are at the finish line, kind of walking around standing is like my, my, my pulse on them. And we're, we're essentially negotiating how much more work to do based on their reaction in the moment. And these high school kids, like they're really in tune with themselves. You go, oh, I think I can do one more. Okay. Give it a shot. Okay. Oh, I think I need a little bit longer break coach. Okay. All right. Take three minutes and then we'll come and we'll do another uh, series of sequence of two or three laps. And go, okay. And through that negotiation, everyone's workout construction is essentially different, right? This gal might have done, you know, two sets of four times four laps with 40 seconds rest and then three to four minutes uh, recovery in between. This guy might have done two times three laps with 40 seconds in between with three minutes. And then he did another, uh, you know, uh, two times two laps. This gal might have just been, you know, three by, three by two laps break, two by two laps break, three by two laps break, whatever, right? The goal is not how did they follow my exact prescription as I wrote on the piece of paper. The goal is how much time under pressure did they get? And I picked 10 minutes or I mean, I picked 10 is the maximum and six is the minimum because I decided having, I looked at the math, I said, all right, having this much pressure for this level of athlete, that's going to get the stimulation or the signaling event we want to help create the environment of improvement we want to see, not only metabolically, but also psychologically, right? And so that's a demonstration of how we can apply these concepts of igloy or flux training in the moment to each individual. But if you would have asked me, hey, John, what's the schedule today? What are we going to do? Five years ago, I would have said, everyone's doing this just like this at their own pace. But this is the this is the construction period in the story. Now, not the case at all. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, you know, Actually, what I want to do here is is to wrap this up, is to explain that in the Igloy course, this is what you get. You get a combination of history, of quotes, and real, you know, life understanding and explanation of what Igloy and his athletes did. And you get interpretation from a modern scientific view. You We bring it in. And for those listeners, what we're doing, because we, we think that this is such an important course because Igloy is one of the most misunderstood coaches out there but needs to be known by more and influence and influence more because it's literally game changing um we're we're going to give you a week free of the if course. you're a new member yeah if you're a new member new, sign up week free new members sign up week free um Let's, let, let, you know, we're going to make up the coupon code on the, on the spot here. So let's do it. Um, what do we, you're the coupon guy, John, give us a name and then I'll, I'll, uh, work Pretty on simple. that. In the back end. It's Igloy for the win. Igloy, Igloy for the win. Igloy FTW. That's the coupon code. Igloy okay. FTW. Igloy there we for go. the win. 
Eggloy FTW. Put that in. We'll also link it in the show notes on Science of Running. You get a week free of the course. Dabble around, explore. If you like it, keep listening or and of keep course, watching. In the clubhouse, we'll have a dedicated. Uh, we have a dedicated category or, or section in the clubhouse where it's all just conversations about this. You know, either scholars conversing with them, scholars asking me and Steve, etc. You know, we're organizing the clubhouse a lot better now. Now that I understand Discord, I'm taking the time to figure out how we organize this and thinking not only about now we're at 500 members, right? It's about what happens when we're at 5,000 members because hopefully we just continue to have these dialogues here with each other, but also more importantly um, on the podcast, but more importantly online and in person. Because that's how the message spreads. One person at a time, one coach at a time. So take the leap. Take the leap, take the leap. Get exposure to Igloy. See what we're talking about. Trust me, it will be well worth the time and attention. Steve and I literally have spent cumulatively, you know, the equivalent of, you know, what, 40 years at least <laughs> figuring this out. <laughs> I mean, we both in our 20s were like, oh, early 20s, like, hey, we got to figure out Igloy. So this is like, yeah, this is a passion project beyond belief. And yeah, we're so excited to bring and roll it out to everyone. So it's going to be awesome. All right. Well, check it out. Igloy, FTW. You got it. You won't regret it. Again, this is stuff we can literally say you're not going to find anywhere else because it's nearly impossible to find. <laughs> That's right. We searched for decades and this is, uh, this is what we got. <laughs> All right. Well, take care, everybody. Keep listening. We appreciate you. Best of luck in coaching.